Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Michael Edlin with Coal Banker in Pacific Palisades, California. Last year, he closed 49 transactions with a total sales volume of $89 million. His average sales price was $1.8 million, of which 33% were buyers and 67% were sellers. He has a seven-member team, one manager escrow coordinator, one marketing director, one buyer specialist, one administrative support, two field associates, and one team leader. Michael Edlin is the team leader of the Michael Edlin team. He's been an agent for 29 years. In his best year, 2013, Michael sold 54 homes worth $120 million, with an average price of $2.2 million. He's sold over 1,200 homes in his career worth over $1.5 billion. In this call, Michael talks about how a bad home buying experience convinced him to get his license, his being-of-service approach to real estate, what it's like selling million and multi-million dollar homes, how he generates the majority of his business by repeat and referrals from past clients and sphere of influence, the method he uses to determine the probability of repeat and referral business from each person in his database, his annual marketing plan, how he asks for referrals, the script he uses to find out-of-state referrals, how to find perfect fit team members who are committed long-term. Two of his staff have been with him for 17 years. The five books you should read to succeed in real estate, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Michael. Thanks very much, Mike. It's good to be here and happy to help in any way I can. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Michael, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Before I was in real estate goes back a couple of stages. Uh, My educational background after high school was at UCLA, and I received my bachelor's degree in psychology and then went on to earn a master's degree in business administration there. Uh, Following that, I joined a family-owned business manufacturing draperies and curtains for the mobile home industry. And that's primarily what I did before the real estate career. How long did you work in the family business? We ran that uh, company for about seven to nine years. We ended up with three factories and different cities throughout California ended up being the leading supplier on the West Coast by the, I think it was eight or nine years later. What prompted you to get into real estate? Well, after we sold the family business, 
which was a very profitable thing to do. I became a business consultant part-time. I also did the research for different companies, managed uh, portfolios, and enjoyed, we had a son, and I enjoyed parenting role, and that kept me occupied for five or six years happily. And I went into real estate. That was because of wanting to be around people again and being people-oriented. I had the desire to have the opportunity to be of service and wanted to do something in a significant way. So real estate became my first choice after months of considering alternatives because when my wife and I had been looking for a home many years, 12 years earlier, we had a rather frustrating series of experiences working with three or four different agents, one after another, and were quite disappointed uh, that they really didn't listen to what we had to say and what our simple needs and wants were. We had a short list of five items and were willing to pay a fair price for any home that had it. Most of the agents seemed to do three items, was adequate to them, And so after many, many months of uh, not being very happy about it, we finally found one who did make an effort to listen, but unfortunately he wasn't able yet to find something for us. Um, As a result of not finding something in the conventional way and not having any professional counseling, we found a home on our own for sale by owner. So we decided many years later when I wanted to go into some line of work where I could be of service. Uh, my wife and I figured real estate certainly was a good opportunity because uh, there had to be better ways of doing that than we experienced. And you believe the key to the frustration was the lack of communication and in particular that the agent wasn't listening to your needs. Agents didn't listen or they'd partially hear or they took it upon themselves to conclude that if they could find three out of five, that ought to be good enough, uh, and we shouldn't be so picky. So it was a lack of communication more, I think, on their part than ours. We were pretty clear. I I wrote, uh, I can remember it very clear to this day. It was just one half of a piece of paper with five lines on it, with hardly any words on those lines. So It was a a failure in their part to really get what we were saying. I know a lot of agents have the belief that buyers are liars, and I've heard that too many times, mostly from the old-timers, fortunately. But I think it really comes from a lack of compassionate and careful listening skills so as to be more professionally of service in a way that would be really of benefit to the seeking buyer. How have you implemented this idea into your organization to make sure that you and your team don't do the same thing to one of your buyers? I started with that, and unfortunately I had the advantage of uh, background in psychology and also various studies that are related 
people skills oriented. What we implemented a long time ago was a practice of always asking questions and going what we call three deep. So if one asks a question, not stopping with the answer that's given, but to find out what does that mean to you or why is that of importance? Something else that prompts them to go a further step. And then with respect to that answer, try and go one more step further. Clarify it, really actively listening, not just hearing it. Uh, Making notes so that it's tracked, clarifying and coming back to them and saying, well, just so I, I really want to understand, be sure I clearly understand what you just meant by what I think you said. And then asking another question. I think my team is pretty good at that. Uh, So by really listening actively, which means asking more questions, it doesn't eliminate the possibility of miscommunication or misunderstanding, but it it sure does draw out uh, other facets, aspects, certain issues that may be of significance to the potential client. I think that's probably our most, our single most active way of of addressing that need. And it's also, frankly, Mike, it's it's not being attached to the outcome. So I'll start with the basis and find out what their interest is about or what their motivation is is stemming from. I'm not attached to an outcome to sell someone something. Uh, if that's not the best conclusion. Uh, let them come to that decision themselves. And sometimes my questions will lead someone in a totally different direction than what they'd presupposed or assumed that it would have. So that helps a lot, too. Our our commitment, Mike, is to service, uh, not so much to uh, selling. And as a result, the sales come quite readily. By listening, by actively listening and participating in that conversation and digging three steps deep, I assume you're building a higher level of trust with the person that you're working with, and that is why it's easier for the transaction to move forward. If someone doesn't have a trust in their agent, and in this generation, it's been very interesting for me to observe over the last 29 years in real estate, the changes in the buyer mentality the atmosphere of of, uh, what we used to be accustomed to to what it is today, increasingly, there's a greater need than ever for trust because the consumer often starts off with mistrust or distrust, and so it has to be earned. And to me, uh, one of the best ways to earn it is to show sincere interest and care, and that, I think, is reflected by the process of asking intelligent and well-considered questions. Michael, when you got started 29 years ago, do you think you had a fast start or a slow start? Fast and slow, I would say, are relative terms. I assume you're familiar with the concept uh, Gladwell came up with in his book, uh, I think it was Blink, about uh, 10,000 hours. Sure. Uh, being required to become really, really expert and proficient in any level or type of activity. If you're not, it's a good read. It took me probably three or four years of gradual and steady growth 
before I really knew what I, I mean, felt that I really knew what I was doing. Again, I wasn't trying to build up a real estate career. That wasn't my motive. My motive was to be of service. Since what prompted my original idea was working with buyers, I made every effort to meet as many potential buyers as I could, as fast as I could. But at the time, I wasn't thinking about a real estate career growing at all. It was just a matter of service. I'd say, in retrospect, I probably had a more rapid success in my business over the first few years, but it was a steady growth. It wasn't dramatic until after about four or five years, and then I'd, I had really gotten some traction in the process, and by then, I'd realized that to service more buyers, it would be wise and necessary for me to serve more sellers, so I had become the leading sales agent in our marketplace. By the eighth year, I was definitely in a a top position here, and I'd say at that point, the career part of it was pretty rapid in growth. Michael, do you know how many homes you've sold in your career now? About 1,225, I think. It's a bit over 1,200. Do you uh, happen to know what the volume is on that? The volume uh, is approximately one and a half billion. Wow. One and a half billion with a B. So you're a billion dollar agent. That's correct. Well, Michael, let's dig into where you're at. We, we started to kind of go there for a second, but let's dig in a little deeper. Where is Pacific Palisades, California? Physically, Pacific Palisades is located between Santa Monica, which probably most people know where that is. That's on the coast at the west end of Los Angeles. We're located between Santa Monica and Malibu, which probably most listeners would know of as well. We're a coastal community, very narrow in depth and kind of long, stretching from one end to the other between Malibu and Brentwood or Santa Monica. Do you happen to know the population there? Population in Pacific Palisades itself is about 25,000, Mike. We're very active in servicing Santa Monica and Brentwood, and there's a, a large population base in those. But the, the community of the Palisades, it's, as I said, a village community, and it probably won't hold more than 30,000 people, even if it ever is fully developed. And is that where you focus the majority of your business, right there in, in the Pacific Palisades? The vast majority, probably 80% of our business is located right in the Palisades. Pacific Palisades, is that a suburb or a satellite of L.A.? Pacific Palisades is a suburb uh, village community. It has its own zip code, 90272. It's part of the city of Los Angeles, uh, much the same as people would think of Bel Air. That's uh, part of the city of Los Angeles or Westwood. This is also part of the city of Los Angeles, unlike Beverly Hills or Santa Monica, which are actually separate cities themselves. Describe your current real estate market. Average time on the market has gone down steadily for the last three years. 
right now we're about on average I think 50 to 60 days on market. It'll probably stay in that range for most of this year depending on inventory growth and interest rates it it may get extended again or it may go down even more. Last year was 70 days on the market. The average price point uh, right now, the list price is almost ridiculous. We're very short of inventory on the lower and middle end. So as a result, the average list price today is about $3.5 million. The average sale price today is more like two million three, two million four. As far as the type of of homes that make up the mix, it's a blend from townhomes that'll sell in the seven hundred thousands range all the way up to estates that'll be over twenty million. Your question about the the trend of the market, it's been trending up now for several years since it bottomed out. I expect, again, if interest rates don't go up uh, that much in the next several months and inventory doesn't grow to meet the demand, I don't see any way we're going to avoid having uh, buyers having a more difficult challenge and prices gradually going up, even though as of three months ago they've reached probable all-time highs here. I'm thinking about your averages. If I did my numbers right, your average was about 1.6 million last year, which is very high compared to the rest of the country. Uh, However, in your market, it appears to me that that would be just below the middle of the market. Is that true? Are you selling kind of the the lower end of this very high-end market? No. Uh, Yes and no. Because my background is in business, I made a decision many years ago to not focus on the higher end of the market, whether the market was strong or weak, going up or down. My focus has been by design right square in the middle, Uh, looking at turnover rates, uh, looking at time on market. It just seemed to me to be better, better for our business to not focus on the ultra high end. So we'll always tend to be below the average, but then bear in mind, the average here is skewed because if you have a few 10 or $15 million sales, it doesn't take long before the average is suddenly much higher. So I don't focus on those at all. So, Michael, your your average last year was $1.6 million. In your market, what does that look like? What type of home can someone purchase for $1.6 million? How many square feet? What kind of location? Give us kind of a, a picture of what that would look like. Well, there's two, two points in what you just said. Because we do have some degree of our sales that are townhomes, and a lot of other ones in the last year were, I know for most of the country this will sound kind of absurd, but these are teardown houses sold to developers who put up new homes. So the reason why we have such a shortage of what would have once been called affordable housing here, right now, for example, Mike, there's only one house for sale in Pacific Palisades that's under a million dollars. Only one. One. 
out of over 70. The market has been totally dominated by investor developers for three years. And the problem is they are seeking inventory quite liberally. They make offers all cash, no contingencies, and they'll close in seven days or 15 days or whatever the owner wants. So as a result, it's affected and skewed our whole market, but it's also impacted our sales averages. As you note, we're selling, or we've sold if you do the division, it looks like we're much lower than the average, but that's because a fairly large number of the ones that we sold were of that caliber. So I sold 54 homes, a large percentage of them being torn down. It was a lot value. That's one of the reasons why our figures ended up being lower than what our typical target range is. As far as to answer your question, what is what does a typical or average home look like that's average in our market? If I consider average being let's call it the average list price today is three and a half million dollars. What would that look like? Between three and four million dollars right now there are twelve houses for sale. In terms of size, the smallest one is fifteen hundred feet. It's located on a fourteen thousand foot lot on a lot that has a view in the Riviera Palisades. The Riviera Palisades is the highest priced area in, in the in the area. The average prices in there today are probably five or six million dollars. So that's an example of one and they're hoping to sell it to an investor. Close to the village center, which is very desirable, there are a lot of shops and schools, uh, many facilities available that people like. There are three homes for sale between three and four million. One of them's on a 5,000 foot lot, it's 3,500 feet, and it was built two years ago. Four bedrooms, four baths. Another one of those that's close to the village is priced at three million seven, and it's 4,500 square feet on an 8,000 foot lot, brand new home never lived in. And the third one, it's a half acre of land, which is really rare, not far from the center of town, 3,000 square foot house priced at three million six. Besides those, there's an area that's outlying about 10 minutes drive from the center of town where there's a home of 6,000 feet on a third of an acre uh, for three million five. Uh, there's also a very large property in the same area that's 5,000 feet. Those were both built in the late 1990s. Those would be typical examples of what right now would be found between three and four million dollars in Pacific Palisades. One outlier to that is someone has a half acre lot with an awful house that's been torn down to the studs. They never finished the project. It's uh, framed as 3,000 feet. It has one of these views that is incredible, unbelievable, about 300-degree view uh, site from the city, the ocean, mountains, everything. They're asking 3,000,006 
for the project. And that's the middle of your market. That's the middle of the current listings available in our market. That's correct. And Michael, I think the people listening to us would be wondering, what kind of people are coming in to buy these homes? What, what kind of professions are they? What kind of person has a, you know, if you're working in a market where your average sales price is 200000 this is 10 times higher. So what kind of people do you see coming in to purchase these properties? There are a lot of professionals. There are uh, attorneys, doctors, a lot of uh, business executives. About a 24% of the buyers, Mike, already live here, and they're buying something with the equity buildup they have. They're buying something bigger or nicer or with a view that they've always wanted. Uh, so they sell what they have, and they stay in the community. Some of that, let's call it 25%, a quarter of the market, some of them are people who are empty nesters. Uh, you've got two-level 6,000-foot homes they don't need, and it's a maintenance issue, and they're getting tired of doing stairs, so they sell, and they seek a house that's much more manageable, hopefully something closer to town, and hopefully something that's one level. So that those are equity positions already there. Recently, we've started to see some tech industry buyers increasingly. The area south of us, uh, Santa Monica, and then south of there is Venice and Playa del Rey. Uh, there is a very, very large uh, growth, a rapid growth of uh, Google, Yahoo-type uh, industry and the ancillary ones that do production for them, software engineers, app developers, and these are people that are young. They're in their mid-20s uh, to mid-30s, uh, suddenly getting jobs. They move out here from the Midwest or the South or wherever in the country they happen to have begun from. And the job market here, they're, they're in such high demand. They're getting $100,000 to $150,000 uh, with signing bonuses in some case. So they're making up a fair amount of the the new buyers that haven't lived here before. And then there's a lot of buyers who come from Santa Monica. About 20% of the buyers uh, have moved there first, start families in townhomes or condominiums, and then realize that they want more of a family community, which is hard to find, and they discover the Palisades. So, again, they have an equity build up there, and they leverage it into properties here because interest rates are so low historically, a lot of these buyers who otherwise wouldn't be able to even think about it, they're able to pay $2 million to $3 million for what in the, in the Palisades is not a great large new place, but it's definitely a nice home. Did you grow up in the Palisades, or how did you choose to work this market? I went to UCLA and lived on campus for uh, seven years and as a result became somewhat familiar with the west side. I'd been brought up in the San Gabriel Valley, which is in the other direction in Los Angeles County. It's about 45-minute drive east until I went to UCLA. When we got married, we rented an apartment in West Los Angeles 
And after being there for a few years and saved up enough for a down payment, we started exploring where we'd want to hang out. Our main driving force was a view uh, that included the city and the ocean. And it was pretty easy to tell by driving around, Mike, which areas had that unusual combination. There's not a lot of them. And Pacific Palisades just happens to be one of the best as far as the combination of those ingredients. So that's why we focused first here and stuck to it until we found one. We still live in the same house today that we bought then. You moved into the neighborhood 30-some years ago, and when you decided to get into real estate, it was obvious to you to start in your own backyard. Well, I knew it. This is one of those kind of communities that if you really don't know it well, it's not the easiest place to... It's a small community, but within it, there are 11 different neighborhoods. Each one has its own characteristics and value propositions, price ranges and energy. Uh, The history of the Palisades is is quite interesting, even though it's not an old, it was begun in the 1920s, but it doesn't have the rich history a lot of the country has. It goes back 100 years. But uh, because of the way it evolved, some by design and some just by, by sprawl, the neighborhoods are different. And so by living here, of course, we'd become, I'd become extremely familiar with the nuances of each section. It was just a perfectly natural. Besides, I couldn't see any point in driving any further. Why would I go somewhere else to work when I know it and I live here? Yeah, I was wondering if you had moved to that market specifically to work the luxury homes or if you were already there and, and you just answered that you were already there. Already here, but I've never thought of it as luxury homes per se. It's just this is home. When you bought into the market 30 years ago, was it upper end, high priced area at that time? Or have you just seen a lot of appreciation in the last 30 years? Pacific Palisades is fairly in sync with the other upper end areas ranging from Beverly Hills to Malibu. Uh, There are about six different areas that have always been of higher desirability for various reasons, and they all move fairly much in tandem. Pacific Palisades, it's moved up substantially since those years, but I wouldn't say dramatically more than Beverly Hills or Malibu, they all being highly desirable. There used to be, it was hundreds of of thousands of dollars ago, the average in the Palisades was 250 to $400,000. When we bought ours, we didn't pay even $60,000 and today it's a $2 million home. But when we bought it, Mike, it was that $60,000. We almost didn't buy it because we were looking for up to $50,000. And there were a lot of homes to choose from, but they didn't have all the ingredients that we wanted in combination. So we were fortunate enough to have a relative, an aunt, who was extremely experienced in real estate uh, investments 
and we asked her to hold our hand and tell us what we should be doing from her perspective. And she thought about it for 10 seconds and said, buy it. As a wise move. Absolutely. We've been grateful to her ever since. Well, Michael, let's talk about how you generate your business. My understanding is a majority of your business, around half your business, is coming from past clients and sphere of influence. Let's talk about that. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Our database total is probably about 6,000, five to 6,000 people, of which uh, sphere of influence is probably uh, uh, several thousand, depending on how one defines that. We have past clients of of a thousand or so, and I'll say four to five thousand other than that that are built into the database by one means or another. Just to round that out, so the other three, four thousand that are in there that are not past clients or sphere of influence, I assume those are leads that come off the internet or sign calls or or people that, that haven't done business with you yet? That's correct. How do you keep track of these people in the database? What kind of software are you using? I do everything on Top Producer, and I have it networked uh, so that everyone on my team has access anytime from anywhere. How are you staying in front of your past clients and sphere of influence? What is your marketing schedule or your marketing plan look like throughout the year? It depends on the category and the probability of doing something at some point in the next year. But on average, I have scheduled in top producer contacts I'd say with probably 80% of them between three and six month intervals, depending again on on what the probability is that they may either do something themselves or potentially be a source of leads for of someone else. Other ones that are not so likely, but I don't want to lose track of them, probably nine to 15 months. And I I just kind of make a decision when I make a contact with them when I want the next call to be scheduled. So these are all phone calls? I'd say 80%, Mike, are phone calls, probably 5% in the mail because we don't have any direct way, and maybe 15% of them are email because we don't have an active phone number or they don't want to be called. Michael, you said that you will decide how often you will contact them based on the probability of repeat or referral. How are you determining that probability? Two things. One is I trust my instincts very, very much. I go by feeling at time more than, uh, than logic necessarily. But when I'm on a call with someone, depending on their energy and how the conversation goes, some people will convey the message that they appreciate my call, keeping them up to date on the marketplace, offering services, which is what I generally am calling for, and make it clear to me that they're leaving the house when they're, when they're carried out. That's when it'll be sold, if the family wants to, or if they have to. Well, in that kind of a case, 
I immediately changed the next call date to 12 months, which is perfectly fine. At least I want to stay in their awareness, but there's no point, as I see it, for me to be in touch with them every three to six months unless they happen to be someone that I sense is in communication with a lot of people or have some influential contacts, in which case I might make the judgment call to contact them every four to six months simply because I can add to the conversation, by the way, I know you're not moving forever. I recall you told me you're going to be carried out, and that's great. I love it. But by the way, who else do you know who might be moving in the next three to six months? So I, I would bring them up to a much higher level of frequency if, if that was my judgment. You just gave us a, a little script there at the end that you would add to the to the tail end of your conversation. Could you give us a bigger picture of what this conversation looks like when you're making these calls? Uh, what is your scripting? What do you say when you first call them? What do you say if you get a voicemail? What if you say if you get them live? Could we go through a couple of those role plays? If it's live, and again, I'm I have top producer open. So I have a record of every previous communication. Uh, so I know what they've done, when they've done it. Often I know the kids' names or who went, who's going to, who went to college when. Whatever might have been of, of some relevance in the conversation to me to keep track of. So when I call them six months or whatever months later, I have the benefit of looking at the previous conversations and I can in that case, start on a personal note. How is so-and-so doing in college? Or how's the new job worked out for you? If they changed positions or something like that. So immediately, it's, it's, it's not just a stranger calling again. Uh, there's some rapport established, and I build on it. If I get them on the phone. If I don't, I try to leave messages that'll last about a minute and a half. Two minutes at the most and not very much space in that brief of a period to do much personal. But I'll say something to connect with something that's personal and then just let them know that I'm simply calling to update them on the changes recently in the marketplace that though they may be already aware of it, the market is such and such today. Interest rates are still driving it. Not so good for buyers. If they know anybody who's planning on buying, be empathetic to them. It's a great time to be a seller. I know they're not interested in selling, but just if anybody they talk to is thinking of it, maybe encourage them. It's a good time. It's a good time to be refinancing. Interest rates are not going to be where they are near historic lows for more than another 6 to 12 months. And so nothing urgent, but time to be mindful and particularly if they're doing financial planning in the next several months, to bear in mind their property may be worth more than what they might have thought. Thanks very much. Don't hesitate to be in touch with me if I can be of any service. Oh, and by the way, I do have a vast network of agents throughout the country that we work with. If you have anyone that you know planning on buying or selling anywhere in the country, any kind of property, uh, we're glad to do the research and put you in touch with who might be the best qualified agent in that area to handle the job. I can usually get most of that into a two-minute message. That is really condensed. 
You've done that before. Well, I've done it a few hundred times, so it doesn't take a whole lot of thought. It's just trying to suit it to the particular individual in their situation if there is something to individualize it. How many calls do you want to make either each day or each week? I want to try to do about 20 calls in a day. We have a minimum of 10, but 20 would be an ideal day. It depends on the quality of the calls. I'm not religious about it. Uh, Some agents set up a must, you know, I won't leave the office till I've made X number of calls. By me, it's more important, the quality. And I had a conversation today with someone, for example, I thought it was going to be a two-minute message. I got him on the phone, and then I figured, oh, well, it'll probably be a five-minute conversation instead. It turned out to be 35 minutes, but it was worthy because I was helpful to him, and it was nice for him to be able to talk to someone who was willing to listen. So it left a good impression and good taste. But, But overall... That would be a general uh, number, and that includes, if I get up to 20, that'll include my scheduled top producer calls. It'll also include any callbacks uh, to people that are listing type or related, so it varies. It sounds like you're making around 50 to 100 calls per week, is that correct? Ideally, I'll make 50 to 100 calls a week. That's true. And in addition to that, I'll do dozens, if not hundreds, of emails. It's kind of interesting. You're making at least 50 calls a week, and you're closing 50 transactions a year. That's true. I don't know that there's a relationship directly to that, but that's about right. When you're making these calls, the 10 to 20 calls per day, how long does it take you to make those 10 to 20 calls? If they're voicemail, it takes me two minutes to leave the message and 10 seconds to make a note in top producer, maybe 30 seconds if it takes me some time to get, if it's slow on the system, and then I'm on to the next call. If I get someone on the line maybe one out of three times or one out of four times. It can vary. I try to keep it to about five to eight minutes so I can move on. But again, I'll make the judgment call based upon who they are and how the conversation is going. It sounds like the objective of your call is to build the relationship, to let them know that you're there, let them know that you're available for service, but you're not pushing super hard for boy, you need to give me a referral or, or do some business today. I don't know how you felt about it. and well, You maybe feel differently now, but I never liked, uh, and, and still to this day, shudder when someone knocks on my door, calls on the phone, wants to sell me something. The worst thing anybody can do is walk into my office and start trying to sell me something. I can become so reactive, my staff has to intervene uh, to make it politically <laughs> correct. So... Because I'm ultra-sensitive to salespeople and my radar shuts them off, I go the other extreme in my own communications with others. So what you just described, it's nothing I would ever, I've never done it with anyone. I'm one of those, uh, one of the trainers many years ago said, try to think in terms of when everybody's going in this direction, 
their zigging go zag in some different direction. And it works for me because I'm not a salesperson in, in the sense that you're described. It, it does not, I understand it works for some people. They're effective at it. But I've always felt that since I don't like it, that probably a lot of other people don't either. You take a soft sell approach, just again, being there of service, being there if they have a need, just making sure that they know that you're available. That That's correct. To me, everybody that I communicate with, whether it's in person at an open house, whether it's on the street, whether it's uh, somebody recognizes me and asks me a question in a sidewalk or in a restaurant, whether it's an email or phone contact, they're all potential leads to me, but they're leads for possible opportunities for me to be of service. And for me, I'm as thrilled as I can be if someone needs a good termite company, I can turn them on to who we find to be really good in the termite field. Or if they've got a plumbing issue, I can give them two good plumbers. I've succeeded in being of service, so it doesn't matter. I'm not selling anything. (laughs) Do you offer that in your phone calls or your communications that you can refer them to service providers? Absolutely, every time. Michael, you you make these phone calls to your past clients in Sphere of Influence. Is there any other way that you're staying in touch with your past clients in Sphere of Influence? We have, on a regular basis, if it's a past client, and there's a way of being in touch or keeping in touch with them, uh, we do set them up on a program where they get a gift of fresh fruit either every month or six times a year, nine times a year, depending on the program that we choose. But we'll stay in touch with past clients or some significant contact people that we have through that. We do send out uh, Thanksgiving cards every year to uh, probably a thousand, I don't know how many people now, but it's probably over a thousand people is a select group from our database of previous clients. We also send out at the beginning of the year to everybody in our database and the whole community, whether they're in our database or not, we send them an update on the market activity during the year. We send them included in that a comparison of statistics for that year in various different parameters compared with the previous nine years and inside we insert a magnetic refrigerator-type uh, calendar that gives the holidays of the year, so it's useful. And that goes to everybody at the beginning of the year. Those are our primary communication means. The fresh fruit gift that goes out either six, nine, or 12 times per year. Does that go out to all your past clients or is it a a more exclusive group, say people that you think are more likely to refer or repeat business? For better or for worse, I'd say probably 90% of the people that we've done business with, whether they buy a home or sell a home, they get uh, that gift. The only thing that'll vary isn't the person usually. I mean, we'll take someone off the list if they're if they were really jerks, which is rare, uh, or we'll, we won't have them on the list in the first place then. 
if they move and we don't know where to, of course, we'll take them off the list. Sometimes we'll change, and instead of being every month, we'll make it uh, nine times in a year or six times. There are also two different sizes. There's regular and there's... So we'll sometimes differentiate if it's just a couple versus a family. Or in years later, we sometimes will cut it down to small from large. Or if they make a comment, some people are out of town for two or three or four months. Next year, we'll change it so we don't send it to them during the months. We know they're not there because it, they get the fruit obviously doesn't last long enough for them to enjoyment. If someone's done business with us, we don't do client parties. We don't do organized events. We do these instead. It costs me between 150 and 175 dollars a year for each one of them. So that's that's my way of of saying thanks on a regular basis and staying in touch with something. What company do you do that through? We use Harry and David, Mike. They're based in Oregon. They have a good selection of combinations. They also have what they call towers where they'll start, if someone does an annual type program, the first of the of the series is usually a tower, uh, meaning it's a, bo- it's, a, it's a stack of three to five boxes with sometimes fruits, cookies, candies, different things. And then every month or every however often you pay for, they just send out a box of, of fruits. And you can pick which months you want to use. If, if you like particular kind of things, you can pre-select what they are. Seasonal items, of course. And they're easy to work with. Uh, if any of your listeners are interested, be sure and request someone at the corporate level puts them in touch with one of the reps that handle large volume so you get a much better price break than if you just ordered it. How do your people know that this fruit box, this fruit box is coming from you? Does it have your name on it? Does it have a, a mailing piece, a letter that has your name on it? How do they know it's coming from you? On the front of the box is a label that has their name and address, and it says it's from me, and it's got a two-line message that thanks them for their participation or for their being involved in our world or having worked with us depending on whatever our message would be, but it's right on the on the top of the box. Could you give us an example of what message you've put on there in the past? No, I can't because we just do them automatically and I don't get one myself. <laughs> I, I, I drafted the uh, typical notes uh, probably five years ago. It might say something like, thank you very much for your confidence and uh allowing us to be of service, feel free to contact us at any time, the Edlin team. And do you get a lot of comments coming back that your past clients and Spirit of Influence, they enjoy this gift? Absolutely. There are many people who, by one means or another, are very appreciative of, of receiving them. How long have you been sending out these fruit baskets or these uh, fruit boxes? We've been using Harry and David, Mike, for probably 10 years, maybe more. So you must really find a benefit in doing that. It must really be advantageous if you've continued to do it for 10 years. 
I wouldn't say advantageous in the sense that most business decisions would be made. It just was my decision. I considered having an annual client party, which would have probably involved the same number of people, although now it certainly wouldn't be as many as, I mean, we have a lot of it in it now, but this costs me more than a, a client party would, but it's a way of, of being in touch at least six times in a year with a lot of people. It's a qualitative thing. I don't track any business results from it. It's an investment of $20,000 or whatever it is in, in a year or more. It's just something I like to do to give back. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. You also mentioned you send out Thanksgiving cards. What's in the card? Does it have a certificate? Does it have a private message from you? What's in your Thanksgiving card? Our Thanksgiving card, and by the way, we do that rather than regular holiday Christmas or New Year's because I discovered in doing some research that almost, I think it was 90% of the cards agents sent when they did send were sent out around the holidays. So I started sending them out on Thanksgiving because very few people do. It stands out more. If we change up every year. They're different. This last year, we, we came up with a custom-designed card. Our team photo, which is quite a joyous, new, uh, high-energy look. We're in the midst of fall color kind of background, and the message was to the effect of wishing them a very happy holiday season and, and uh, much health, health and happiness and abundance uh, through it. Is it a postcard or is it a traditional greeting card that's in an envelope? This is a greeting card in an envelope. They're sent out first class. Does it have any anything else inside, like a, a certificate to, to get a turkey or something? Anything per the holiday, any kind of certificate, or is it just the message and the picture? It's just the message and the picture. No call to action, nothing added. What we do, though, again, is we follow up in the beginning of January. By January the 3rd or 4th, they receive a Happy New Year message from us, which does have the card with a very nice message. It's a trifold card. And the outside, the way it's folded, it says, Wishing you a healthy and harmonious New Year. And inside, the message we had this year was we hope you will enjoy the enclosed 2015 magnet calendar throughout a year of growth and prosperity. We'd like to thank our clients for their support and welcome you to contact us for real estate counseling or assistance at any time. And then we'd go on with a couple other nice lines. In addition to offering concierge-level service, please keep in mind that we also help people find experienced, high-quality agents to work with all over the country. Our networking connections are an excellent free resource, and we'd be happy to share them upon request. And then we've started in the last year 
this paragraph, it would also be our pleasure to make a 10% contribution to a local school organization or charity of your choice when you buy or sell your home with us. Please visit michaeledlin.com for property listings, articles, and so forth that you may find useful. With all good thoughts, Michael Edlin and team. So that's the, the card. It's got a one of the sections is a beautiful picture of us. It's a nice backdrop. And then on the back of it is 10 years of real estate median sale prices and average sale prices per square foot for houses and condos. A couple things in there. One, you mentioned, again, the idea that you can refer these folks to another agent across the country. Do you end up sending out a lot of referrals? I do the referrals by intensive research, Mike. Many agents go through relocation companies or their company's relocation department. I'm not satisfied with that because, again, my commitment's to a high level of service. So what I do is I'll research in the area, find some agents who look like they're a good fit for the buyer's profile. And again, when I'm asked to to do that, when I have the opportunity, I find out who the buyer, what their profile is, age, occupation, kids, needs, price range, and so forth. So I'll end up talking with managers in different cities and different companies. I'll find out who's their best agent for that profile. And usually it takes about an hour, two hours, that I'll come up with two or three good prospective agents. And then I'll pass along to the one that we offered to do it, at least one of them, if not two or three. You also mentioned that you've added this phrase about a 10% contribution to the school of their choice. How many folks are taking up on that? For many years, many being four or five, I've been one of the leading contributors to local charitable causes. We've donated probably $200,000 or more to various groups, various organizations that help the village in terms of landscape, in terms of services. The city of Los Angeles has cut back a lot on uh, support. We have a program where they clean the streets and the sidewalks twice a week, which I contribute uh, quite a bit to, about $10,000 a year. And those uh, contributions we've been making as a matter of course. But what we started doing in this reach out has resulted in not as many as I would have hoped so far, but there have been four who specifically responded to that opportunity to engage our services. So a, a particular group of their choosing, and they have to have proper nonprofit IRS status in order to be qualified for that. But we're hoping that this year will result in more of them as takers. And meanwhile, simply by promoting it, as we've been doing now for two years, a lot of other local agents have started to do the same thing. And that uh, that feels good to me because uh, over a period of some time, it'll enroll a lot more agents in a, in a give back system where in order to stay competitive, they'll have to to be giving back as a matter of course. 
Michael, I'm about to wrap up the section on past clients and sphere of influence. Do you have any advice to an agent who would like to develop a better past client or sphere of influence business? To past clients, I recommend someone who's new in the business immediately, if they didn't already, set up a database, uh, client relationship management, set up, it doesn't matter what make or brand, but set one up from the very beginning and put everybody into that database that they've worked with. Anyone that they've bought something for, anyone they've sold something to, as well as anyone who might become a future lead. Uh, uh, The nice thing about that software approach, Mike, is that you can classify or categorize, rather, in various different ways. So they could put in the database someone and call them a past client who bought something or a past client who sold something, and that will differentiate them from someone they hope to sell something or buy something for in the future. Uh, that'd be my the first thing I'd do. The second thing I'd do is, along with it, I'd set up a, a contact schedule for each one of those so that it would be impossible for them to drop to the crack because the program would prompt the call when they wanted it to be done. So it would forcibly keep prior clients in mind and whatever content they want to do it could be a phone call it could be an email it could be sending something out in particular and many markets uh, newsletters might be very effective it just depends on what their skill set and their time and energy would enable but as far as keeping in touch with past clients I can't think of any tip that I could suggest more important than that. You mentioned you're making these phone calls, and I want to do another follow-up question there. Is there a certain time of day that you like to make those phone calls? Do you make those first thing in the morning when you get in? Well, I've been told by people doing who do surveys that the best time to make phone calls is Wednesday and Thursday from 4 to 5. That would be if one's purpose is to get someone on the phone and talk to them. Uh, I don't particularly schedule my calls in that systematic of a way at all. I don't like to call people before 9 o'clock in the morning, and I don't like to make calls after 5.30 in the afternoon, simply because I want to be sensitive that I don't want... I, I I wish not to disturb someone in an activity time that I can knowingly avoid. Aside from that, it's just on a daily basis, my routine changes every day based upon what's what comes up. So if I want to make phone calls for an hour or an hour and a half, it doesn't matter to me, Mike, whether I do it in the morning or the afternoon. I was just wondering how you made sure that those calls didn't fall through the cracks by maybe having a set time to make the calls or try to get them done early in the day so they don't go missing. That's a good question, but because of Top Producer or any other CRM, I'm sure, it'll prompt the action, and in that case, the call, for that day. If I don't make the call, then I can't schedule the next time. So it stays in my 
face, uh, call it to-do list, all day. So if I start with a list in my face that's 12 people to contact that day, and I've only gotten to nine of them, there's three that are just going to be right in front of me. Whenever I open up Top Producer and I go to that section, there's three names. So it often falls to the crack if if I look at it that way. I don't do them all on the same day I'm scheduled, but uh, again, I'm not religious about it. So the next day, I'll have 10 new calls scheduled, but those three from the day before are going to come forward with it. So it can't fall to the crack, excepting if I decide, you know what, I don't want to call them anyway. I just don't feel like talking to them. And so in that case, I'll change the call date. Maybe I'll push it forward a month. And then they're off my radar and nothing fell to the crack. It's just something I consciously decided to postpone. Well, Michael, I want to shift gears here and I want to talk about your team Where I'd like to start there is if you could please outline or give us a big picture of your team. My team consists of five primary in office and two that are out in the field. They're affiliated with us, but uh, they don't actually work out of the office per se. They have been with me for between three years and 17 years. They're all licensed, don't have anybody that's just um, an assistant. Like many people who form teams, they'll hire assistants. Um, Everyone on my team was a licensed agent before they came to join us. Uh, Four of them actually were in real estate before I brought them on the team. The fifth one was in an escrow office function. Uh, and she is the only one who didn't actually have street experience as an agent. My first one is an escrow coordinator. Uh, She manages the other ones for me. She's also uh, legally trained. She's finished law school, and uh, she's been with me for 17 years. The second one is a buyer specialist who's been with me also for 17 years. Uh, She doesn't work with the selling side, although she can show properties for us. And the third one is a marketing director. She is very visually oriented, extremely talented with words and, and visual concepts, very bubbly and connects well with people, does a lot of our property showings, Uh, as well as does all of our marketing activities just for our listings. And the fifth one is administrative support. She supports me and our escrow coordinator primarily, and she's also usually the one who will be the first line uh, of phone answering. And the two that work in the field, they'll work with buyers or listings that are in areas that they work in more effectively than our team generally might. So that's the constitution of of who they are. You mentioned 17 years for two of the folks. How have you been able to keep your team together for so long? Those weren't my first team people. When I went into real estate, I was the first one in Pacific Palisades 
to decide to hire an assistant. And I was laughed at by the longtime agents who thought this new kid on the block is an idiot. Uh, <laughs> nobody has an assistant. You go bankrupt because the market goes up and goes down. And you, you hire someone, you got to pay them regardless. So, again, to me, my background was in business, not in sales. And it didn't take me long to figure out. As a matter of fact, it was less than a year that I figured out there's an awful lot to this business that I, I could do, but it sure wasn't my forte. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me as someone with a master's degree in business to be doing filing or a lot of other things that this business certainly requires. Driving papers around, doing little errands, making copies. So to me, it was a no-brainer. You hire someone to do those things. So I did, and uh, she was fabulous. It helped me grow my business through the first three years, at which time she decided to move on to another area of the country and made the mistake of hiring someone without giving it enough thought. I wasn't careful enough, and I ended up with someone who turned out to be uh, not the best of judgment as a result, and then I hired another one, also a mistake, and by then I was floundering because my business was growing, and I didn't have a good support system. So I made a bigger mistake, and I hired two people at the same time who could do the tasks, but they had an, a different agenda. That was to learn everything that I did to become as good as I was so that they could do it on their own. So that experiment didn't end up well. At that point, I regrouped my thinking, and I asked the question you just asked, Mike, and that was, well, let's be practical here. I should have hired slow and fired quick. I was going to do it differently, and I asked the assistant that I did have with me at that time, which was one I'd taken on about six months earlier, and she was really had a lot of good potential, but along came someone who asked her to get married and travel the world. Well, that suited her fine, but put me in a in a bind. So she did me a courtesy of agreeing to stay for a few months, during which time I decided to do it differently. And I started interviewing more carefully. I started doing consideration of, uh, are you familiar with the DISC system? Yes. So that kind of a concept I put into application, decided what characteristics for the job I wanted her for were the highest in in importance and what characteristics would not be good and so forth. So it, it took me about a month. I found someone who was a perfect match, and then I wanted a buyer specialist so I could round out that side so I didn't need to go out showing properties as much. And I got lucky and found someone who had several years' experience working with uh, people that are buying and potential tenants of property. So they started off with me then. That was 17 years ago. Why are they still with me? Uh, Same reason as the one I brought on four years later for marketing. Each of these had been in the field as a real estate agent, found after a couple of years it really wasn't their cup of tea. They liked what they did, parts of it, but hated the rest or weren't really good at it. 
but each one had skill sets that were quite excellent in certain aspects of the business. So I made the conscious choice to create job descriptions around the skill sets that they each had. And as a result, one of them who's extremely high D, very much on top of details, bottom lines, does not like showing property at all, but is incredibly good at managing details and, and contract files. That's been her her place to work. Well, she loves it because she doesn't have to do the things she doesn't like to do. She gets paid a whole lot of money and uh, gets to love what she's doing. Same thing with the marketing director. She She's just a whiz-bang, loves it. Uh, she doesn't have to to do a lot of the other stuff. Buyer specialist, she can do basic paperwork and contract forms because she needs to, but beyond that, she's really not good at paperwork management. It's not her forte. So she loves it because she does her part and then passes it on to someone who loves it. So the reason why they've been with me for a long time isn't only that they get paid more than most agents will ever make, but because I try to foster an environment that's supportive of what they want to do. And also, my wife and I have taken a personal interest always to be sure people are happy and things are important. We try to remember birthdays, special events. People need to take time off for family. We figure out ways to make it happen. And then our most recent one, She's just terrific support system, great skills, wonderful sense of humor, and she's been with us now. This is her third year. Michael, there are going to be a lot of agents listening to us. They're going to be listening to the fact that you have this this staff here, a well-paid staff, some of the marketing things that you're doing. And the question they're going to ask is, are you profitable? Being a businessman, the answer is, of course. I guess since the beginning. It's been a profitable business. Michael, would you mind disclosing to us what your net profit margin is? My own personal depends on uh, volume. I had learned from, uh, you probably knew Howard Brinton. Oh, yes. Uh, so Howard's top producers came together at one year, and the consensus was that a good range uh, for for new agents to budget or plan on, uh, 40 to 50, 55% would be a good target. Most new agents probably are closer to 30 or 35% at the beginning. I've run consistently probably 50 to 60%. So $100 comes on the top of your business, 50 to $60 is coming out the bottom and going home with you. Well, it goes home with me, but then I have to pay the government. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but that's not... Uh, I, I, I am uh, a regular networker, or network participant would be more accurate. Uh, three or four times a year, I'll be in a different city with a different group of agents. Um, we share an awful lot of information that's very helpful and uh, inspiring and good for for use in different areas of the country. And some of the most efficient and effective agents I've discovered vastly better. They're doing 60 to 75% to the bottom line consistent basis. Uh, one of them told me that, that he was seriously 
uh, two years ago it got 80%. So my 50 to 60 is, to me, it's incredibly good. But to give agents an idea, it's certainly not impossible to do a whole lot better. Michael, what drives you? You're broken up. I can't hear a thing you're saying. Sure. Sure, I'm sorry. Let's let's do that again. Michael, what drives you? What drives me is is pretty simple, a combination of a lot of things. One is that to me uh, it's an opportunity. I have a passion to grow and to be of service, to learn and every day uh, with every transaction learning something new. What drives me is that. And because of the nature of this business, to me it's like a playground with an incredibly or unlimited variety of equipment and people ever-changing. It drives me because there's a never-ending opportunity for growth and uh, service. Michael, why have you been so successful? Well, I've been so successful... First, because of what motivates me uh, are the opportunities and the challenges and why I'm successful because of them. It's on a personal level fulfilling that desire that I have uh, to demonstrate a greater understanding to my own satisfaction as well as those that I can help. And bottom line, I think I know what I'm doing. Uh, I love doing it. And my intention, uh, it's backed up with expertise that's been well-developed, and I'm almost never attached to the outcome, which to me assures success. Michael, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? First, I'd suggest a new agent learn the inventory, study their market, know the numbers better than anyone, become an expert on prices and statistics, be able to intelligently discuss without referring to a volume of, of uh, notes. So when they're talking with a potential opportunity to be of service, whether it turns out possibly to be a buyer or a seller or just anybody, that would be number one. Without that knowledge and that facility, a new agent is always going to be at a horrible disadvantage. Secondly, I would advise a brand new agent to volunteer to do open houses as much as they possibly could at every opportunity available. Obviously, as a new agent, they won't have open houses to do themselves, but if they offer their services in a proper way, sufficiently to enough agents that do have listings. They'll have those opportunities. And uh, there's also the way of doing it. A lot of agents stop having houses open when they have a contract on it. It's a good opportunity for new agents to volunteer to hold it open for backup offers. Many agents think the only time to have an open house is Sunday. There's nothing wrong with open houses on Saturday. If it's an exposed area, 
It's surprising often how many people will stop by, and if it's a busy street, Mike, weekdays, it's a great time. New agent often doesn't have anything to do for two or three hours. Well, it's a good place to be, to do nothing, but think good thoughts and visualize people stopping at the open house and attract them in one energetic way or another and start meeting people that way. Or even bad weather days, nothing wrong with an open house. Third thing, I think, if I was counseling a brand new agent, if they don't already have listening skills well-developed, would be to make every effort to study and learn how to ask the right questions. Make it a high priority. Get scripts and dialogues from trainers or their company and particularly focus on the questions contained therein and learn how to listen well, remembering they got two ears and one mouth. So they'll be better in a position to hear or listen to what's being said. I guess more important than anything I've just said, as I think about your question, if they can develop a service mentality and a positive attitude at the beginning with the feeling that someone's glass, certainly their glass, is always half full if they choose to look at it that way. It'll never be a situation where they're coming from a basis of shortfall, deficiency, limitation, but only one of abundance. I think those would be first on my list for a new agent. Michael, do you think that top agent interviews like this one with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I think they're extremely valuable. Before I began in real estate, while I was waiting for my license to come through, Mike, the broker that I planned on putting my license with at the time, I'd interviewed every broker in town. With this one particular one, I noticed had a whole shelf full of cassette tapes in his office, and I asked him about them, and they were training tapes. A lot of them were interviews with agents. This is back in the days before there were CDs, of course. And so even before I went into real estate, I, I was a, not a learnaholic, probably not a word, but I was a tapeaholic. I, I listened to every interview I could get my hands on. Because from each one, I learned something different, something new. Even if an interview such as this one or others that you've done, even if someone's familiar with 75% of it or feels that a lot of it's useless, some people, for example, might hear what I have to offer and say, well, it doesn't make any difference to us because... Who in the world sells properties that are $2 million? That's ridiculous. It won't help me at all. The principles are the same. I could do the same success that I'm doing here in Pacific Palisades if we chose to move to the Midwest or the South or the Northeast. The parameters would change, and instead of selling homes that are $2 million, I'd be selling homes that are $500,000. And instead of selling... 50 of them, I'd be selling 200 of them. 
uh, instead of a team of five, I'd have a team of ten. So I think interviews such as this give opportunities to benefit from someone else's experience, uh, things that can be shared with others on the path. I think they're highly valuable, Mike, for that, that reason. Well, Michael, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? A few parting thoughts, I think. One would be reading. I think it's extremely valuable and useful. And actually, I might even put that in the answer to your earlier question, what would I advise a new agent to do? Yep, that's what I'd do. I'd add item number, whether it was, I don't know how many items I gave you, but five or six. I'd add to it a reading. I'd set up a program where perhaps once a month uh, to read something specific pertinent to a skill set that was needed or could be seen highly beneficial uh, to business development. There's no way someone can possibly, even by listening to a lot of interviews, there's no way that someone can possibly cover all of the the uh, subject matter or the skill sets. A lot of books that would be helpful to real estate agents aren't real estate books, uh, but certainly many of them are. So I think that would be as a, a parting thought. I couldn't possibly overemphasize to me the absolute importance of a steady program of reading related to that a flip side of it, I'd suggest a diminishment of listening to the news, reading newspapers in detail, watching uh, TV. There's hours a day that could be dedicated to learning more that would be specific to their particular business growth. Most of what's in the news, wherever it's presented, has agendas. It's certainly not usually very positive and optimistic. I think related to my comment about reading would be attitude, Mike. I think if there's any ways that agents can become more positive, more optimistic, more enthusiastic, higher energy, they're going to assure their success much, much greater. And reading the right books that would suit them would enable that to be enhanced immeasurably. So those are my uh, my parting thoughts. Such books as, since I'm thinking of it, if people aren't familiar, they, I think, would benefit from Gary Keller's books. He's, he's a masterful uh, guide in the field of real estate, not just for Keller Williams, but He's made his thoughts available in mass. A millionaire real estate agent, I think, is a classic. If someone wants to grow their business in a, in a measured, systematic way, he gives a blueprint. His more recent book, oh, he had one in between, Shift. That was very good as the market was morphing a few years ago, and now his new one is The One Thing. I think if there's any one book out there in today's market moment, that'd be a good one. Lots of others. I can give you more titles if you'd like. I would. I'm glad you moved into 
giving us a list of some of your recommended books or specific skill sets that you think that people should develop? I think in addition to those particular ones, branching out to to completely unrelated, but definitely germane, Spencer Johnson wrote a book many people probably have heard of, Who Moved My Cheese? It's just an incredibly good concept to keep in mind regarding change. Too many agents who've been around for a long time don't remember that things do change, and before they know it, they they start to become marginalized uh, simply by new events and trends that are beyond their awareness, and not because they couldn't have. So that'd be a good one. Who Moved My Cheese? Real short read. There's uh, a great book for people who want to learn uh, to relate and communicate much more effectively with people who have quite clearly defined communication styles and preferences called the Platinum Rule. For people who aren't familiar with it, everybody knows about the Golden Rule. You know what the Platinum Rule is, Mike? I think that the Golden Rule is doing to others as you would like them to do unto you, and the Platinum Rule is doing to others as they would like to be done unto. Exactly right. Bingo. If a real estate agent understands that concept, they'll do much better in communication because they won't think, well, this is how I'd have liked it, so therefore I assume everybody else would too. In fact, they'd understand quite the opposite. And the platinum rule, it just happens to be one. There's many others. The DISC system rests upon the understanding that each individual is a complex combination of a lot of different personality and mental and emotional traits and tendencies. It's not judgmental. It's not right or wrong. It's just it's a way that people are wired. And if people, uh, if agents in particular in this context, if agents aren't sensitive, at least to the key differences, there are four basic types, if you can use that. Everyone's composed of all of the ingredients. No such thing as all this or that. But it's what's predominant or what they're most familiar with. If an agent is predominantly, uh, for example, most top successful, really active agents are high Ds. High Ds tend to be demanding, bottom line, short. They're very much in control of everything, very goal-oriented, but they often lack a soft touch. Uh, They often hurt people's feelings, not deliberately or intentionally, but just because of how they do. If they don't understand how they can come across, sometimes they can blow things out of the water, or they can hurt people's feelings and then leave people in a sobbing mess on their team. Someone who understands the different nuances of the different types of communication styles can do very, very well. There's actually a combination in the platinum rule. He breaks it down not only the four, but each of the four into four, so it's a total of 16. And if someone really wants to make a study of it, that book's a classic. Going in a totally different direction, Wayne Dyer, certainly not in real estate, but I think most people in the country would be familiar with his name. Uh, He's done an incredible job of growing energetically, metaphysically, spiritually. 
And his book, The Power of Intention, is a very uh, interesting read for people who want to understand how how one's mental energy focused in the intention can make significant differences in how successful or not successful they may be in the application of whatever they're trying to accomplish. Somewhat along the same line and attitude, a fellow named Keith Harrell wrote a book called Attitude is Everything. It's a good read. It's true. Power of Full Engagement that came out quite a while ago. Uh, It's really very good with a lot of training points and managing energy, not time. It was written by a fellow named Jim Lower and I think Tony Schwartz or Schwartz, something like that. Bob Bolin, who you interviewed at one point, wrote a fabulous book he titled Clarity. And it's a it's a very good read, systematic 30-day program to becoming extremely focused and very successful in, in almost any sales type or, or other fields as well. So that's a, a handful of starters for those who want to go more into energy, which many people are beginning to realize is what the universe is composed of only. There's a lot of books and speakers ranging from psychics, people who consider themselves channelers, lots of unusual and odd ways of languaging concepts, but uh, there's a whole lot more to the universe than what we think we see. And the better one understands the underlying principles by which everything operates, and there are some different spiritual or metaphysical or scientific approaches to doing that. I'm happy to discuss that, too, if you still have the time. Tell us, what would be a good book if somebody did want to learn a little bit about the energy concept? Well, I think a wide-ranging possibility, but one would be, uh, and it's on a DVD, uh, Down the Rabbit Hole, and it's a longer version of a movie that came out called What the Bleep Do We Know? Uh, that that uh, popularized a lot of the studies that have been done about energy. It's about an hour and a half to watch What the Bleep. Uh, it's about two and a half to watch Down the Rabbit Hole, which is what they did was they interviewed a lot of people who are studying and have made practice of, of an awful lot of surprising demonstrations scientifically proving in different ways that this is entirely a mental uh, or energy universe and everything that we hear see and touch is not really tangible in the way that we've always assumed and it's easy to assume it is of course the group that put it together started with a assumption that there was a lot that they did not know but they knew enough about that there was, it was worth pursuing about what life was really about, what underlying principles have been studied. And so they set up a mission to interview people that were kind of weird in most people's eyes or kind of fringe in fields of science, looked upon with some criticism by most conventional thinkers, discovering things mostly in quantum physics fields, 
there have been a tremendous amount of experiments done that have been unquestionably validated time and time again. Remote viewing, if you've ever heard of that, people able to see things going on somewhere else without being there. People manifesting results simply by the application of their thought. There's a book out called E Squared that was written by a lady whose name starts with a G, slipped me right now. She then put out a book more recently called E Cubed, and she gives experiments that anyone can do. They're practical, uh, 72-hour, observe the results, and make your own decision whether you find that it works or not. And so that's a, a hands-on way that in recent years, uh, Grout, her name is Pamela Grout, I think, G-R-O-U-T. Those two books are really terrific for practical application of energy principles. A lady named Esther Hicks has put out a lot of works about what became known as the Law of Attraction. The Law of Attraction you may be familiar with from a book called The Secret. And the Secret came out several years ago. Rhonda Burns was the writer of it. And there's a lot of principles in there. The principles aren't new, Mike. They go back thousands of years. Some uh, in ancient Egypt, some in ancient, uh, what we now call uh, Japan and China. Different cultures and backgrounds have long since known there's principles at work that we don't see, but they're at work nonetheless. There's many writers. Ruiz has written several books about Mayan culture and uh, how, how they've done, the Indians in South America. There's many that go back to pre-Christian times. The Hebrews had a lot of understanding of those principles of life. There was a movement early in the last century called the New Thought Movement. Many very influential politicians, writers, poets contributed to it and benefited from it. And a lot of the success of our country was by certain industrialists who understood the principles of life to a point where they could demonstrate them far more effectively than others. Some of them chose to keep those principles to themselves for obvious self-gain. Other ones decided it was fair to share with people. No doubt you've heard of Napoleon Hill? Yes. Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich, came from interviews with about a dozen of the most successful industrialists in history. And he was given the mission of interviewing and synthesizing their messages by Andrew Carnegie from the Carnegie Steel Company. Carnegie felt it was immoral for him to just pass on without somehow sharing with people an awful lot of what he knew that he'd proven. Obviously, it doesn't have very much to do with real estate and what you're attempting to do in these interviews, but the book, Think and Grow Rich, which has become a classic, was based upon input from dozens of people that Carnegie gave Hill access to. Hill started producing his findings 
I think if anyone is interested in personal growth, those kind of directions can be very beneficial. It's certainly worth exploring because they lead to principles of life uh, that are timeless. Well, Michael, what I'm picking up here is that you have a very curious mind. You want to take in a lot of information from a lot of different sources. You want to keep your mind open to a lot of possibilities. And one of the ways that you like to go about doing that is by reading these books and pulling in this information, synthesizing it, and see if it's something that is valuable to you to move your life forward. Is that true? That's correct. And real estate just happens to be my laboratory in which I get the opportunity to put principles into practice and see how they play out. And if they don't play out well, I get to take a look and see how come and what could I do to learn from it and improve on it. Well, Michael, you've mastered the formula for success in your real estate laboratory. Your focus on the service mentality, willingness to prospect, and ability to detach yourself from the outcome is the foundation to your success. You hired competent, loyal, successful team members by creating specific job descriptions and utilizing the DISC personality assessment. Your charitable contributions back into your community matches harmoniously with your being of service philosophy. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who doubled his production three years in a row and sold 242 homes last year. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.